Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. For message notes and links to big things going on at Hope, check out the notes section below. When you're done listening to this episode, take a minute to follow us here, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content, additional resources, and more. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Hope. How are we? Good. <laughs> welcome to all of you joining us online and at our physical campuses at Apex and at Garner and at Raleigh and our brand new Northwest Cary campus. Can we give them a round of applause as well? I was there at the launch last weekend. It was phenomenal. There was energy. There was people, man. It's amazing. So hats off to that whole crew who was willing to leave a permanent facility to go to where there's more neighborhoods, more people to set up and to tear down so that more people can hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys are awesome. And I, I think you can see by the numbers that God just blessed us last weekend. So that's amazing. If you're just joining with us, we started a brand new series last week that we're calling Rhythm. It's about living on mission in your everyday life. And it's really about um, how we're getting rid of the hurdle that to be impactful, to make an impact in God's kingdom, to be used as a missionary, this hurdle, this idea that we have to add more to our already busy life. And that is a lie. That's what we're trying to refute during the next few weeks, that in order to make an impact, you don't have to add a single thing to the life that you currently live. You just have to begin approaching some of the rhythms, some of the stuff that you do every single year and every month and every week and, and, and every single day with gospel intentionality, with the purpose of sharing the love of Jesus. And the last week we talked about eating. You guys really seem to enjoy that. I got about 15 emails from folks that were on diet, so I apologize. Uh, but this week we're going to talk about something a little bit different. I want to open up with a poll. So raise your hand if this is your responsibility in your household or in your apartment with your roommates. So raise your hand if it's your responsibility to do the laundry. Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, cool. You can put them down. What about the floors? Like vacuuming slash swiffering. Everyone does the floors, all right? What about the groceries? And that can include just typing it on your phone and they drop it off. That counts. Uh, what about take out the trash? Yeah. In my opinion, there's two types of people. There's those that put the trash can out the night before, and there's those that have a heart attack at 6 a.m. the next morning, and they're running out in their boxers like down in the street. I'm the second type. Uh, what about uh, taking out your dog or your, you don't take out cats. I don't know. I'm a dog guy. Yeah. What about brushing your dog's teeth? That's actually a chore in my household. Yes, apparently. My, that's, that, my wife's responsible for that, and our dog only has about five teeth, so I don't think she's done that great of a job. Which, by the way, hey, this week we are celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary. How cool is that? Yeah. 16 years ago, I said I do, and it was the last decision I made for myself since, but just kidding. Love you, babe. All right. Raise your hand if uh, take it, cleaning the toilets, if that's your responsibility. Ugh, brave souls. What about taking out the trash uh, in, the, in the bathroom, little, the little bathroom trash? Okay. We got a responsible bunch. See, I could keep on going and going and going, but these that I just listed, those things are actually rhythms. Those are things that we do on a monthly or a weekly or sometimes a daily uh, routine. Now we call them errands or we call them tasks or we call them chores, but in reality, these are rhythms that we do in order to meet the needs of those people that are in our household, those people that are in our sphere, those people that are on our list of people that we are responsible for. It's these rhythms of meeting needs. 
And what I want to talk about this week and what we see in the Bible over and over again is if we would just begin to expand that sphere, if we would begin to kind of expand our definition of our household, if we begin to add just a few more people to that list of people that we meet needs for, God could actually use that as a doorway to do incredible things in their lives. And it's what the Bible calls blessing or serving. Now, don't check out. I know you've heard about 100 sermons on serving. I've given over a dozen myself. And uh, usually when I talk about serving or we talk about serving here at Hope, uh, occasionally we talk about inside the church. I'm not going to talk about serving inside the church this week, although that's important. That's commanded. I want to talk about serving outside the church. And you've heard me talk on that as well. Uh, but I think we even overcomplicate that. I've been thinking about this a lot the past few weeks preparing for this talk. And as you read through all of God's commands for us to serve one another and to serve others, you see this weird thing. You see that God never commands us to do acts of service in order to get on his good side. He never tells us to do all of these good things for other people in order for our good works to outweigh our bad works. And that's important because that's every other religion, just so you know. It's so that we can, we can kind of balance the cosmic scale so that God will let us into the good place, whatever that is. But in Christianity, that's not the case. The reason that God calls us to do all of these acts of service is because when we become a Christ follower, we literally become a servant. It's because being a servant is part of our new identity in Christ. And we talked about this a little bit last week where we said that when you become a Christ follower, you become a son and a daughter of God. And then me and you, we become brothers and sisters. We become a family. We talked about how we also become missionaries sent out into the world for the sake of Christ. But what we also see is that we, we, we step into a new identity of servant. We are servants of God at the core of who we are when we become a Christ follower. We, we do these things because it's who we were created to be in this new creation. And it's interesting if you actually read through just the first a sentence of a lot of the epistles, so the letters that the, the biblical authors wrote, they have to figure out how they want to introduce themselves to these churches that they're writing letters to. And some of them had visited them before. Some of them, these were strangers. And so they're kind of racking their brains, like, should I call myself apostle? Should I call myself evangelist? Should I call myself, like, witness of the resurrection or something like that? But in, in almost half the cases, they, they choose this term servant. When, when Paul uh, writes a letter to the Romans, he writes this. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And when he writes the book of Philippians, it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, when he writes a letter uh, to Titus in his church, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Even James, the brother of Jesus, does this when he says, uh, James, the servant of God and of the Lord uh, Christ. Uh, when Peter writes 2 Peter, he kicks it off by saying, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Jude, raise your hand if you've ever read Jude. Yes, yeah, a real letter. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And even the very first sentence in the book of Revelation that John writes, he says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, he's referring to himself in third person, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Not Christ followers, not disciples, not family of God, but servants. It's who we are. And see, when, when the disciples used that term servant, they were using a technical term. 
They weren't just saying that we were kind of, we have, we have a servant's mindset. They're using a term that would have rung a bell for the readers, like, like CEO or CFO or regional vice president, whatever that means. Uh, it's the term in Greek, it's doulos. Everyone say doulos. And that word doulos can be translated either servant or slave. They're synonymous. And I chose the word servant because when we hear the word slave, we kind of think of our, our American or Western form of slavery. And slavery in the Bible was, was pretty different. Um, in fact, in the Bible, there were three different types of servants. Uh, there were non-Hebrew servants or slaves. So these were like in the Old Testament, say the Israelites uh, conquered the Canaanites or the Hittites. So the prisoners of war that they took back, they would choose servants or slaves from there. We don't have time to get into that. Then there were Hebrew slaves or servants. And these were Israelites that had come into financial hard times. So they got into some debt that they couldn't crawl out of. Uh, their crops failed one year, and they're just having a hard time financially recovering. So when they were in that position, they would enlist to serve uh, a Jewish household for a period of time until that debt was paid off. And so during that time period, they would literally take on the role, the identity of servant. I used to be a farmer, but now I am a servant. And their life's purpose was to see and to notice all the different needs that cropped up in their master's household and to meet those needs. So from the moment they woke up till they went to sleep, they viewed themselves as my purpose is to meet the needs of my master. And they would do that until the debt was paid off or for a period of six years. Well, why six? Well, it's because God in his grace instituted this thing called the year of Jubilee. You ever heard of that? It happened every single seven years, and lots of stuff happened, but part of it was all debts were canceled. How awesome would that be, right? Year six, getting lots of credit cards because the seven years coming up. Um, and so they wouldn't have to work anymore, but also all servants or slaves would be set free. But there's a third type of a servant, and it's called a bond servant or a bond slave. And these were Hebrew people that got in a bad financial situation and enlisted to serve their master but after a few months or maybe after a few years, they really started to like it. They really found purpose and meaning in serving their master. They started to honor and revere and love and respect the master and the master's family members. And they felt, they felt love. They felt dignified. They felt where, well cared for. They, they liked this stable sort of life. And if they were in that position, they could willingly choose not just to sign up for another six years, but they could choose to identify as a servant to that master for the rest of their life. So it's called a bond servant or a bond slave. And if that was the case, they would go through this really cool ritual you can read about in the Old Testament. But they would go before the whole town and say, hey, I love my master and he loves me. And we got a good thing going on. And I want to devote my entire life to being a servant in his household. And then he would put his ear on the doorframe of his master's house and his master would take an awl, A-W-L, and bore a hole or pierce his ear. And then he would have a permanent mark so that every single person in town, when they saw his ear, when the, when the servant looked in the mirror or felt his ear, they would be reminded, I'm a bond servant. I've willingly chosen out of my free will to serve this master for life. That's the term that the disciples are using. That's the new identity that we have as Christ followers. That's why um, Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, For I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. I'm a bondservant. And the reason the disciples took on this identity is because that's what Jesus did for us. 
And that's what he commands us to do to others in the world. The most powerful example of this is in John chapter 13. You can go ahead and turn there. John chapter 13, it's near the end of the book of John. So this is nearing the end of Jesus' life here on earth. And this is actually takes place um, during the last night before he's arrested and crucified. So this is the evening of the Last Supper. And look at what John writes. He says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I love that term, that sentence. And it was, ti- it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So John's kind of setting the scene for us here. And then he does something weird. And you wouldn't really notice it at the first reading, but Bible studiers do. And he's telling what we call a narrative in biblical study. So it's, it's just a statement of these events that take place. Well, he breaks that flow in verse 3 and takes us inside the mind of Jesus. It's kind of a weird move. But verse 3 says this, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return from God. And then John goes back to telling us the events that took place. And I'm asking myself, why did John do that? Well, I think think after thinking about it for a long time that John means for us to pause and to linger over that one sentence in verse 3 for a while in order for the rest of the verses in the story to really have the shock value that it's meant to. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from the Father and would return to the Father. I think that John knows that we have this tendency to kind of fixate on Jesus' human side. Like when we think about Jesus, what do we think of? Like, like a, a, a Jewish rabbi, right? An itinerant teacher that kind of traveled around, kind of a humble guy, a gentle guy. When you look at pictures in like churches, what do you see? He's sitting down, he's got a kid in his lap, kind of petting the sheep, you know. And that's true. The Bible does say that he is gentle and lowly. But John wants us to be reminded, but this is not just fully man, this is fully God. I mean, how does John start his book off? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was equal with the Father. Uh, John says that he was with the Father when he created everything. In fact, nothing that was created was created without the Word. So John's reminding us, hey, when this whole world started, Jesus was the one through whom God did that. Like Jesus is responsible for the, the crazy forces and the violent like acceleration of these particles that form the billions and billions of galaxies and the billions and billions of stars and suns. Like this is his world. He created it. He owns it. In fact, he will one day recreate it. You want to see the last picture of Jesus we receive in the Bible? It's very different than a dude petting sheep. Look, it's in Revelation 19. It says, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. That's Jesus. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the Word of God. And the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice 
flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. John wants us to see this picture, this, this Jesus that is seated at this table during the Last Supper created the world on which he is kind of reclining right now. He has the highest place of honor, the highest place of glory, the highest place of, of power. He deserves all the praise. He deserves us to serve him. There's not a square inch over all creation of which Jesus does not say, mine. Right? I created it. I own it. I deserve the glory, the praise, and the service. And it's this eternal, powerful, glorious king that John says, verse 4, he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into the basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with the towel he had around him. In verse 12, it says, after washing his feet, he put on his robe again and sat down. You do not expect the eternal, powerful king of the universe to take off his garment, to put on a towel, and to wash the disciples' dirty feet. I mean, Judas is included in this as well, right? And you really wouldn't expect this because that task of washing feet, it was reserved for the lowest of the lowest of the lowest servant. Like, hey, it's your first day? You're on feet washing duty, right? But there was no servant at this Last Supper because Jesus had planned this in secret. So he had worked out with the building owners, I need a room. His disciples didn't even know where they were going. So there's no servant, so the, the, the Jewish people couldn't come in and arrest him before his time. But still everyone noticed it. Like everyone knew there's some feet that need to be washed. When they ate during, those, during this meal, they would recline. If you see that in the Bible, it's because they're on their sides, they're propped up with an elbow, and their feet are kind of behind them. So if you were to walk into the room, all you would see was dirty soles of feet. And this would have been very, very embarrassing because this Passover meal was one of the most formal celebrations of the entire calendar year for Jewish folks. So it would be like showing up to Easter in a bathing suit, right? Maybe I hope you could get away with that, but I don't know. So it would have been super embarrassing. And not only that, when you're reclined and your feet are backwards, that means your neighbor's feet are where? Pretty close to your head, which means close to your nose, right? So everyone knew it was a need that needed to be taken care of. And during this day especially, the disciples' feet, they weren't just a little dusty or a little muddy. Remember, this is the eve of Passover. So the population of Jerusalem had swelled to 10 or 20 times its normal population, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, I'm bad with numbers, a lot more people. And every single one of those families would have to um, kill and uh, cook uh, the Passover lamb. So they would have to sacrifice that. They did it in three shifts in the temple. And it was so many lamb slaughters that the street would literally run with blood around the temple. And then every single one of those family members would put that lamb over their shoulder, that carcass, or on a cart that a donkey had, and they would take it back to their home and prepare it. So when you're walking through Jerusalem on this day, it's not just dust and dirt. It's like part of a lamb heart and like guts and like blood and, and the dung from the animals that are, that are carrying this lamb. So everyone knew it was a need, but it was a much bigger need. But the disciples weren't doing it. Why? Well, I think all the disciples would have been willing to wash the feet of Jesus. I think every single one, even Judas, would have been willing to do that. But they knew that if they got the bucket out and the towel and they sat down and washed Jesus' feet, guess who would, would start, a line would start forming, right? You ever, like, hold the door for your family to go in a restaurant and, like, 28 more people do? And you're like, this is my life now? Okay. So 
they didn't want to do that because that would be a sign of inferiority. Remember, this is the lowest of lowest servant. This is a task for them. So they didn't want to be seen as inferior to the other disciples because they're really jockeying for position, for the highest position in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to bring to earth. In fact, they argue about it over this table. Right? So there's a need. They're refusing to meet it. Jesus knows it. The disciples know it. And so Jesus notices and he gets up to meet that need. And it's crazy that he even notices it, isn't it? He's got a little bit on his mind. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed by all of his, his followers except for John and his mom. He's about to go through the, the, the highest amount of, of physical, spiritual, and emotional pain and anguish and torture that any human being has ever gone through. And yet he sees a need in that moment. And he says, well, I'm a servant. That's what I do. And so he goes to meet it. And look at how John describes it. It's staccato. It's the, this, this, these, this scene's burned into his memory. It says, so he got up from the table, which was probably pretty comfortable, right? He was reclined and walking all day. And he was probably seated at the head of the table, I'm guessing. And so he got up from that place of honor and that place of comfort. He took off his robe. He didn't do that in polite company back in those days. A robe was a sign of, of your glory. Um, and you would hand it down from generation to generation. In fact, we know that Jesus had a really amazing robe because it was handmade for him. It was a seamless garment. Um, it was made in one piece, which means he was specifically fit for it. And it was given to him uh, by Mary Magdalene, um, whose life he changed, but she was a very wealthy female disciple. She made her funds in the garment industry. And so he takes off this, this robe of glory, and then he wrapped a towel around his waist, wraps himself in this humble He's not just taking on the, 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 the mindset of a servant. He's putting on like the uniform of the lowest of lowest of servant. And then it says, and he poured water into the basin so he could clean them. And it says, then he began to wash the disciples' feet, got them wet. He would take that dirt and kind of loosen it up. And then he began then drying them with the towel he had around him. He would, he would scrape off that dirt on the towel. He said, your dirt, it's my dirt now. And then it says, after they were clean, he put back his robe again, and he sat down. You see it? He gets up from his place of honor. He takes off this robe of glory. He puts on and covers himself with something more humble. He pours out this liquid with which to clean them. He takes their sin as his own, that dirt as his own. Then he gets up, puts back on his glory, and sits back down. It's the gospel, right? You're like, Chase, you see the gospel on every page. You saw it in Mephibosheth. Now you're seeing the feet washing. It's because it is on every page. It is the gospel of Jesus. It's where Jesus left his throne in heaven, left that glory. He put on human skin. He humbled himself. He came and he poured out his blood. And then he took our sin on our, uh, to himself so that he could cleanse us. And once he was done, he put back on his glory and he sat back down at the right hand of the Father. It's Colossians 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took on, what does it say? The humble position of a slave, doulos, bond servant, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's showing them the beauty of the gospel 
of the cross that he's about to endure. He's given them a living, breathing theology lesson. But he's doing more than that. He's also giving them an example that they should follow. Paul, right before he writes that, he says in Philippians 2, 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, your needs, but take an interest in others too. Have the same attitude of Christ Jesus who came down and humbled himself. In fact, as soon as Jesus sits down, he says this. Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. He says, follow this example. And I don't think he's literally telling us to wash feet. There are some denominations that think that. So whenever they do communion, they divide the men and the women, and they wash each other's feet. I've actually been a part of that. It's pretty cool. But I don't think he's literally telling us to wash feet. He's telling us to, hey, expand your sphere. Expand that definition of house. Expand that list of people that you're responsible to meet needs for or to serve or to bless. Right? Take on that identity of a bondservant. Now you're responsible for all the needs and not your household, but God's household. See? What he's saying is, hey, you already cut the grass. Why not cut someone else's before you put the tools up? Right? You already take out the trash. Why not take someone else's while you're out there? You already pay bills. Why not pay someone else's electric bill, a water bill? or heat bill that really needs it while your checkbook's out. Right? You already watch your own kids. Why not offer to watch the kids of that single dad or that single mom? Or, we've seen this all the time, the spouse who's in town with their kids and whose husband or wife hadn't made it from a different country, hadn't made it from a different state, right? And just show them the love. He's saying, he's saying adopt this identity as a servant and see what God could do through it. This is what I did for you. Now you go and do it for others. So I don't think he's literally telling us to wash each other's feet, but as I thought about this, Jay, you can come on up. I, um, I think it's instructive when you think about this whole process of washing feet. I've actually invited my good friend Jay Jennings and one of our elders here at church. You can actually welcome them to the stage. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> and uh, I was actually um, not going to tell Jay that I was going to ask him to come up on stage and wash his feet. And then I thought, you know what, how awkward would that be <laughs> to have to take your shoes off and uh, expose your dogs in front of like 10,000 people. So I actually asked him last week if, hey, could I actually uh, bring you up on stage and wash your feet? So you can go ahead and take your shoes and socks. It's happening. It's happening. No, I'm not. <laughs> I thought that uh, if I gave him some time to kind of think it over, then it wouldn't be so awkward, and he'd have time to get a pedicure, and I see you did not do that, Jay, so thanks a lot. <laughs> it should be warm, hopefully. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, that's all serving. It always starts as a little bit awkward, does it not? Like, it's awkward to say to your neighbor, hey, I've noticed that you haven't cut your grass in the last six months. Like, that's... That's awkward, right? And it's awkward for your neighbor to admit that, to admit that they have a need, to admit, yeah, you know, the kids were sick and it's been kind of crazy. It's, it's awkward because I think we spend a lot of our lives either judging people for even having needs 
Yeah, why don't you get it all together? Or hiding our needs from other people to appear like we have it all together, right? So it's awkward to bring that to the surface. It's a little awkward, right? I'm, how long am I? How long am I? Known? You can put your other foot in here. I'm just gonna rinse them off. How long have I known you? I don't know, 15 years or something. Have I ever touched your feet before? <laughs> right? So it's awkward, right? It's also. It's also, if you think about washing feet, it's also a little bit dirty, okay? Now, Jay's feet are pretty clean. Thank you so much. <laughs> I assume you showered. It's the least I can. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's probably some germs and stuff that I don't see below the surface, especially for the disciples. Like, it was, it was super dirty, you know? And that's, that's, what, what, that's what all serving is like. What will what, often happen is you'll see that there's a, a need that needs to be met. And you go in with the intention of meeting that one need. And you're going to see dozens of different needs below the surface, right? You're going to see so many needs. You're actually joining this person in the area of their brokenness. You're joining this person in an environment, this area of need, that they haven't invited another single human being. So it's awkwardly close. And you're just going to be with them in the dirt, right? Um, you could offer to serve your neighbor or that person in your classroom or dorm room. And they could get offended and they could never talk to you again. That's part of the dirt, right? That's their pride. It's part of the sin there. Or you could do it one time and hope that it leads to a gospel conversation, and it never does. It's okay. That's part of the dirt. Or um, you could, you could ask, offer to do one thing, and they, sh- they might start expecting you to meet all of their needs, right? Jay, you might expect every time you come to service, Chase is going to wash my feet, right? <laughs> Are you teaching next week? <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, and that happens a lot of time where they, they just begin to abuse your kindness. You had that happen? Um, they become an extra grace required type of person. Well, guess what? That's okay. That's part of the dirt. You need to expect that. And the good thing is, is we have an unlimited supply of grace, don't we, that we can draw from. So it's awkward. It's dirty. You know what I also thought of is it's unending. Like, I'm not doing a very good job cleaning your feet. <laughs> but Jay's feet are going to need to be washed again, aren't they? Um, I, he's got pretty clean feet. I know you like to go camping, right? You got that cool tear, teardrop trailer. Who knows what he's going to step in at the next park or anything. They're going to need to be cleaned again. It's the same with the disciples. The disciples' feet had to be cleaned probably the next day. And that's what you're going to start to see as you meet needs. There's going to be tons and tons of more needs below the surface. Actually, as you get good at seeing these needs and noticing it, you're not just going to notice one person needs. You're going to look around your neighborhood and community and school, and county, and you're just going to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unmet needs, and that can be overwhelming. You need to be prepared for that, see? Um, But the cool thing is that we're not called to eradicate every single need that we see, right? Um, Jesus says two things in the New Testament that are instructive. He says, hey, when it comes to the poor, I want you to clothe them, and I want you to feed them. But he also says this, the poor will always be with you. It's not our job to eradicate every single need. And if you start thinking that, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're not going to step into this identity as servant. Only Jesus is the one that can eradicate needs. And he will do it one day. He just hasn't chosen to yet, right? But the cool thing is that every single act of service, this is just washing feet, right? It ultimately points to God. Those should be pretty clean. Do you think so? All right. You can dry them off here. Everybody give Jay a hand. (laughs) You can put your shoes and socks on. But every single need ultimately points to Jesus. Um, We do a free toy store here every single year at Hope. And uh, we serve so many kids and so many families, you would think that we would get to a point where we've met all the needs, right? The amount of people that need toys every year should go down. Guess what? It doesn't. It just goes up. 
And what we say around here is that the toy is not the point. It's not about the point. It's about pointing to the one who can one day finally meet all of their needs, you see. And so serving, when you look at it with foot washing, it's, it's awkward, it's, it's messy, it's strangely intimate, like you're just joining someone with their brokenness. It can be overwhelming because of the unending nature of the task. But as we're faithful in the small things day in and day out, like a seed that we plant, God can water that. And he can cause growth under the surface. And one day it might eventually bear fruit. And we've seen this in our own life. I had all these personal stories I wanted to share, but I wanted the Bible to kind of be the rock star this week. But we've seen one neighbor come to know Jesus, and that relationship started by taking out her trash. We saw another neighbor come to know Jesus. I actually showed her baptism last year in a video. And it started with us bringing meals to her um, after she had a child, her second child. We saw someone in Asheville rededicate their life to Jesus because we decided to paint their house for so it happens, right? So what is it? What's the need that you've seen? If you expand this definition of house, expand the, 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 the people that you're responsible to meet needs for, what's that thing that you've seen at your kid's school or in your neighborhood or just driving to work on the side of the street that you've just thought, man, someone should really do something about that? You're that someone. You're that doula, that doula right? That, that, that bond servant of Jesus. So talk about this. Talk about it with your family. Talk about it with your small group. Make some plans. Step out. Just be faithful. And then come back next week and share what God's done. So let's pray. Father, we are unworthy that you would stoop and serve us, and yet you did. You left your place of glory and honor and comfort. You moved into our mess so that you could cleanse us. May we do the same. Would you show us an area of darkness, an area of shame, an area of sin, an area of brokenness. And would we be willing, would you give us the strength to leave our comfort, to leave our rhythm, to leave our, our daily just, just way that we live life, and to step out in that identity as servants. And we ask that you would use that to point others to the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.